You're listening to The Robin and Boom Show, where we engage the contemporary world with the great tradition. Wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, or elsewhere, you'll find us there. Now, here's today's co-host, Jason Van Boom. Hello, and welcome to The Robin and Boom Show. I'm your host today, Jason Van Boom. My co-host, Robin Phillips, can't be joining us today because he's busy at grad school. So today I'll be holding down the fort. In today's show, we'll be looking at high school education and the seemingly lucrative industry of college prep, especially in light of the college admissions bribery scandal. In May of this year, the Department of Justice charged 50 individuals, including 33 parents, in what is the largest ever college admissions scam. As parents are desperate to get their children to Ivy League schools, they'll often resort to paying big bucks to enable their children to cheat. This cheating has involved everything, from paying for fake test scores, helping people to create fake CVs, paying millions of dollars for special treatment and missions process, using bogus athletic scholarships to enable colleges to accept subpar students, and much, much more. Now, one of the reasons the scandal has created such a big shakeup is that some big names are involved, such as Lori Loughlin from Full House and Felicity Huffman from Desperate Housewives. Now, joining us today to talk about this is a poet, podcaster, armchair theorist, and international educator, C. Derek Varn. Derek has taught at both the college and high school level. An international educator, he's taught in the United States and in Mexico, South Korea, Egypt, returning to the U.S. to teach in the glorious state of Utah. He presently lives in Salt Lake City. His most recent big publication is his collection of poems, Apocalyptics. The reason I invited Derek is because he combines such an extensive teaching experience with an approach to virtue ethics and a general philosophical orientation that I have found personally enriching. So, welcome, Derek. Hi. Um, yeah. Yeah. And interestingly enough, you talked to me about this today. Um, my form, well, my employer just dissolved um, <laughs> uh, based on similar sorts of problematic financing. Um, <laughs> um, so, which I'll have to be cagey about because it, it's there are pitting litigations. But okay, yes, be cagey. But, uh, but we we get the gist. So this is more than just a few Hollywood celebrities. This kind of phenomenon is rippling across the country. Yeah, and it's endemic. It's uh, across the world, and it's endemic. um, It's really endemic to, I I like at. I was I was talking about this the other day. I am I'm I'm looking for new teaching jobs right now, but uh, I haven't worked in a sector of education that hasn't been rife with this kind of corruption. And you know, um, I'm on the left, so people assume that I'm I that I would have a very pro public school view, and 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 to some extent I do. But this corruption is rife in there too. It's rife in the charter schools, and it's rife in the private schools. The moral hazard, um, to use a technical economic term is different in each sector but it's it's omnipresent um so what is it that we're talking about and there there's kind of three things one is sort of lucrative and legal college prep um particularly for elite schools into 
two is the way the rest of the school system sort of builds around that, kind of giving a lot of people false promises of meritocracy. And three, that there's all sorts of sketchy financing because education is um, labor intensive and thus it's not very profitable. But since it's tied to the state, in most cases, you can kind of back in skim in a lot of ways. And in America, the school choice movement has made this worse, but it's not unique to the charters or the private schools remotely. And I could say that I've taught at every kind of school. I started off in public schools um, and quit uh, in anger at some bureaucratic nonsense I was asked to do that was corrupt, and we can go into that later. Um, and th that was over a decade ago. Then I've taught at all kinds of private schools and now a charter school. And so I've seen all of it and uh, it's a little bit concerning. And the other thing I've done is I've trained teachers and taught at universities um, abroad, often trying to feed kids into back into American universities. Um, and that also plays into this scandal. Um, but it's not as talked about because it's not as uh, it, it's not as transparently scandalous. Well, and the people, scandal that we're yeah, people are in, think perhaps kind of quasi naturally more concerned about what's happening within their own country than in another country. So if this was simply a matter of oligarchs in another country trying to bribe Harvard or USC to get their elite kids into the schools. I don't think they would make such a big deal as when it's, oh my God, this actress from Full House or Desperate right. Housewives is involved in this. And yet, in and, another way, that the, the international stuff, and look, I'm an internationalist in most ways, uh, and I actually really hope more people come to the United States to get an education, but the international stuff actually probably affects their kids more, to be frank. Um, uh, so and, and you could get it, I could get into that. A lot of the, the, um, the scandals on, on segregations and quotas have to do with native Asian, native born Asian American students, Asian students. And then the way those, those have disproportionately hurt, uh, or seem to maybe hurt people, other races, similarly to what happened with, um, with Jews in the early 20th century in universities, once they were allowed in, at at the same rate, they, um, so to be very specific, so like there's a bunch of lawsuits right now pending on ratios of Asians and Asian American students, um, particularly in West Coast universities, because they make up a disproportionately large number of the student body compared to the population size. Um, one of the things that's frustrating about that though, is Asian students from abroad and Asian American students are often talked together in the same way but they're not really and the standards are very very different for the two groups um and one of the reasons for that is that these these oligarchs as you say um and some some of them not even oligarchs just upper middle class kids uh drop tons of money and, and universities use them as a cash cow to get around their underfunding problem so it's a kind of a world trade thing actually one of the things that we United States exports is mm -hmm. elite university and college education. Right. 
Um, sometimes, like in the Middle East, they often will just set up like parallel campuses with the same names. Um, this seems to be more a thing in the Middle East than uh, than in East Asia, and I think partly because the Middle East doesn't regulate them in the same way. So, like Dubai is not going to try to control the content of the schooling as long as you respect certain religious norms in the way that, say, China might. But the other reason is that they have different standards for those schools. Um, and so those are separate campuses and they're operated in separate ways. Um, but it brings in a lot of money into the system. Now, the the other issue in this is the elite public schools have a different have different funding structures and stuff than the elite private schools. And this this is somewhat fascinatingly shameful. So, excuse me, um, one of the things that we, we've noticed that since I've worked in the international education sector is if a, if a kid comes from, from say, um, I don't want to pick on China, but it is usually China, um, a, a place that has lots of new money, China, Malaysia, you know, places where there's recent billionaires, um, and the, the first generation wants to be, wants the second generation to be Western educated properly. Um, these, these endemic cheating scandals tend to happen. Um, and they happen a lot. Like the college board, for example, this is not China, but has removed giving tests in South Korea more than once because the cheating endemic was so bad. And even though the public schools there are, are by the PISA test, that test that we tend to rank the various um, national school systems against each other are quite good. The universities there are not. And so there's this major pressure to get kids into the United States if they can't get into one or two of the, of the top universities in South Korea, because there's just tons of quasi-for-profit universities there. Um, now, what does this have to do with the cheating scandal in the in the United States? Well, a lot of these tactics, these backdoor tactics that I that seem to have been really blown up, and they and they have nasty consequences, not just for the notion of meritocracy. And I can talk about what it's probably going to do later. Um, I, I saw similar things in the international school world, um, where like you would find back doorways to proctor test. You try to get exemptions for, uh, for special education to get to create a smaller proctoring environment where there's less oversight. Um, you would often just, you know, do the legal corruption thing of just endowing major buildings at a university so that you had legacy admissions. You know, these things are endemic and and only really only the testing part of it is where you've seen a whole lot of of just blatant corruption lately and what's sad is in the case of these you know this hollywood scandal right um the testing the way that the testing was manipulated is through use of special education exemptions and then exemptions for athletes. And we might not have a lot of sympathy for the athletes, but I can talk about that too, because I actually do. And I know why those, exe those exemptions exist. Um, and they often don't even pay off for the athletes, but you now have both those inroads being used 
to get these kids into elite universities who haven't done anything. I mean, they're, they're, they, they could even legacy admissions couldn't get them in. So that's where we're at. Um, that's sad when legacy admissions can't get you in. Mm-hmm. In addition, you know, I want to go back. You mentioned meritocracy. Just to recap for our listeners, what exactly is meritocracy and how do these, this kind of corruption, how does this strike at the whole notion or maybe the myth of meritocracy? Well, you know, the funny thing about meritocracy is it was originally coined as a satire, (laughs) a satirical term for real. I was um, doing some etymology on it. And the meritocracy was coined, I believe, in like the 1930s in Britain in a play as a replacement for the for aristocracy but it was it, the, the point that it made even then was that well the, you know the aristocracy had hoarded all the money so they've had more chance of self-development so meritocracy would probably just reproduce the same things okay but we love the word we love the idea so it gets it gets that that sort of satirical notion that like really rhymes with the way we're beginning to see it works now um is just lost. But this really cuts at the idea of meritocracy in three ways. I mean, one, it used to be that you could at least say, like, okay, well, there's these legacy admissions, but these kids at least still meet the minimum standards to get into these universities, even if they're, like, just bare minimums. And then the universities were, you know, particularly the private ones, would use these, you know, these rich, these rich buy-ins to the university at the full tuition to then find it taking people at highly reduced tuitions. It basically, I mean, it, you're still talking like $20,000 a year, which for a middle-class kid is like an, un, an a really high amount of debt load, but they're, re, they're discounting the price like down to one fifth or less. And sometimes they're even cheaper than the public schools and they're using this rich money to do it. So you have like this idea that, well, since these rich people are meeting minimum standards, they're rich anyway. We can take their money and educate them and perpetuate this, but we can also use this as a side door to like fund a bunch of middle class and poor kids um, and get them into the system too. So that was how that was kind of like the moral argument that the Ivies used for this. Um, what we didn't really see though is that spreading into the public sector. And that's because the, the there's two trends that are in the background to this that we have to talk about. One is credentialization of everything. All right. Um, in the past 30 years, I believe that the amount of jobs that require some sort of college degree that didn't previously have tripled. And while there are Roughly, I think 40% of the population or 35% of the population completes college, which is up like um, 10 to 15% from the 90s where I really studied it. Um, These trends really began during the Cold War, where the universities were flush with money for for basically research research and development that wouldn't actually be that profitable, basically to show up the Soviets. And now, since the 90s, that Cold War money is gone. But the universities have credentialed so many people, and it's now a necessity for jobs, you know, that are managerial that you really don't need anything but basic literacy to do. Um, 
so there's this increased notion this increased notion that you need like so at least a BA for almost everything and like when I worked at uh, Geico 20 years ago when I was just out of um well a little under 20 years ago when I was just out of college um I was literally seeing jobs that they would hire high school people for because require at least an associates for any kind of advancement at all and yeah they'd help pay for that but the associates degree didn't teach them anything that they needed for their job it was just a way of like using it as a minimum check for the number of applicants that could apply yeah right? it's basically like a a new kind of high school diploma the associates right. degree even the bachelor's degree it's basically saying okay we certify that this person has basic hygiene is punctual can read write basic numeracy something like that and but also just this prestige of the credential that we've got to have some kind of degree and to defend our hiring practices our hr practices we are following something that can be supposedly measured right and so then you look at this credentialing thing all college university degrees despite all of our tiers and levels and all this except for the ivy leagues and some of the other top 25 are basically equal in value which is kind of shocking, right? But it's true. Um, now, there, the elite schools, that's not true, but you're, the education there may not be actually all that much better. What's better is the access to networking. Yes, yes, access to networking. Also, the resume or CV effect, that if you can mm -hmm. say, I've been to Harvard or Yale, that's going to have an effect, but it's going to be primarily the networking. Right. As a side note, in my jobs, I've worked with a lot of people with Ivy League degrees, and I'm going to be honest, it doesn't impress me anymore <laughs> because a lot of them have been like not very well suited for um, for their job. Um, and to be fair, I think that comes from the fact that it's it's a very particular niece of education that those th those schools are really good at. Um, and if you don't go into certain things, you don't really use the networking correctly the degree it will help you i mean it opens a lot of doors for you i know i have some friends who you know were um were full rided into harvard even though it was like their divinity program and you know from the lower middle class who have who have been able to make something from themselves because of that i don't want to belittle that but it's not as valuable in, like in the terms of like actual the the idea that these people are actually learning more um that's going to depend on the individual. And you know what's sad? That's true in almost all educational situations. The institutions can provide more, but they don't innately do so. And you can, you can kind of ride your way through them, too. You, well, know, you can get to the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that goes back to you know, a fundamental philosophical principle. I want to bring up some philosophy here, too, as part of this, that many philosophers... Theologians, Socrates, Augustine, uh, mm -hmm. Confucius, have said that it is the student who teaches himself or herself. It's you cannot, properly speaking, institutionalize or externalize education. So, like, there's a attributed to Confucius. He says that I can show the student one square, and if the student can't figure out the other, uh, 
I can show the student one corner of a square. If the student can't figure out the other three corners of the square, I can't teach him anything. Yeah, it's funny to me, right? Uh, we can we can talk a little bit about educational philosophy. There's this there's this move partly because of technology, and I can get into my cynical economic notions where I think that the way that's being used um, to kind of for, to make teachers facilitators and to go against this idea that, that you know the so-called um, factory model of education designed in Bismarcky in Germany, right? And while there's a truth that 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 existed. Traditional pedagogy actually is a facilitation model, but it's a facilitation model with authority. Yes. In, th in theory, though, the, the authority of the relationship between the teacher and, and student is chosen by the student. The, like in traditional religious, you know, in very traditional religious groups, for example, like um, you say you study Vajrayana Buddhism. And, and, you know, some crazy things happen because of this. I don't want to make it sound ideal. But the student picks the teacher. This, you know, the student decides upon the teacher and the students, this, the, it is a relationship that is not, um, it is not coerced totally. I don't want to say there's no coercive elements to it. It's, it's not totally free, but it's, it, it, and, and, um, higher education kind of does a little bit with this. Um, with its weird quasi-market, quasi-medieval structure, um, which is, you, you know, that's one of the things about higher education, right? It's one of the few elements of, like, the late medieval, early Renaissance world that survived capitalism. Let's talk about that, because this is actually, I've been teaching, actually, medieval history to some high school students at an international college prep school in mm -hmm. Estonia. And this was actually a topic that I came across and probably maybe you can talk about how do, how does the modern university academic degree system how does that come out of the medieval guild system? Well, I mean, it is a like the the guild mastery system is literally its model. And the other thing we got to remember originally these were not they were not. I'm not going to say they were like totally socialist institutions because we weren't in a capitalist economy and the socialism wouldn't have been relevant anyway. But and also, like, you did often pay, like, your tutors and your masters directly. I mean, you know, there was, particularly in the late medieval, early modern German university, for example, you would literally pay, pay you know, you would pay the tutors, at, you know, right then, and then you'd also house them as a community. And when you got mad at your professor or your tutor, you would run them out of town. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the structure is a mixture of guild and ecclesiastical structure because what the universities were were essentially designed to do was to give a larger part of the population access to education so that the church could have its necessary clerical workers kind of and ecclesiastical workers and also it would you could have barristers and lawyers that was really all it was for the other the other functions of education were kept in the guilds now, what, what made this more complicated is, is science, despite all of our, you know, science is being related to capitalism, all that stuff, but science as we, as we think about it was largely a leisure pursuit um, until basically the 18th century. And as the university was trying to justify itself into modernity, 
it also took in elements of the non-lucrative parts of science into it. And this really paid off in the 20th century because that's why everybody was investing into them and expanding them to the point they were. I mean, this is it is a weird side effect of of the GI Bill, but it's one that I almost think what must have been designed. The GI Bill came in the United States. Okay, we're going to expand educa- education out. We're going to regulate the number of people who enter the economy young, which will decrease the unemployment rate. We will give them an education, and we also have all these people to invest in for this research. And basically, you can get this research on the cheap because you're having students help professors do it um, to fight the Soviets. And the Soviets, for different reasons, um, adopt a similar model. And both systems are based largely on the medieval church system. And part of that is also because in Germany, when the modern when the modern education, you know, public schools come out of the Anglo tradition, but the modern public school structure, the move from like the um, the what the you know the schoolhouse where you where you're taking lessons together until you're like seventeen and you either go into a trade or or um, or some kind of university training. That model was the dominant model for most of the for, for most of the early parts of America, even in the public schools. Germany regimented it, factorized it. It was and it was designed to create. It was designed to sort people and to and to create three different things. And when you hear a lot of people complaining about the modern educate, a lot of educational reformers talk about this. They're not wrong, um, by the way. Uh, this model was imported from Germany to the United States to kind of modernize the, the, the burgeoning public schools. Um, and that's where our grading system comes from. That's where our, um, our levels of, um, of hierarchy within the institution really comes from. And so we took that medieval guild model at the higher universities and we bridged it with this new sorting system from Germany, which also had the medieval universities as a backdrop for it, of which Bismarck and his various reformers were building from. So you have all that happening at once. Now, in the United States, even though education reformers will sometimes forget this, the progressive school movement that tried to fight against this, make education less regimented and more practical, happened immediately, even in the case of John Dewey, weirdly, who's now kind of a father of of some of the some of the excesses in the public school, but that it was also a reaction to this dismarkification. So you have this all going on in the structure of, uni- of of high schools and universities for moment one. Add into that burgeoning nationalism in the 19th and 20th century, and disciplines like English literature become born. English literature was invented, I mean, like, yes, we all study literature, but the idea that you studied English literature as a separate group in our American literature was invented as a reaction to German philology, all right? So they needed its own counter-discipline. Otherwise, you would have, like, studied, like, rhetoric and, you know, world languages, and then history, which would have involved literature. So the compartmentalizing of these, of these areas evolves from that and then also the needs for sciences to be more and more specialized and the humanities 
in the university and in the high school wanted to mimic the structure of the sciences because that was how they were going to justify their continued existence. It's a, it was a bet that historically has not played off well for them. But that's yeah, it all seems happening. Like, mm-hmm. Well, it seems like this whole this whole structure with this fascinating transition from Thomas Aquinas to Bismarck to Cold War mm-hmm. is in the process of breaking down. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and, and I like to sort of like to wrap up here as give sort of a practical conclusion. And you've published a book of poets, poems on the theme of apocalyptics. All right. Uh, with the system becoming more and more incompetent, more and more dysfunctional, and things kind of collapsing, what can families and individual students do to really get a genuine education? All right. If your goal is a genuine education, the one is don't first, I don't want to tell people to forsake the institutions because they will be institutionally punished for doing so. But remember that even if you are formally educated, you're an autodidact. Read on your own, acquire as much books as you can and actually read them. Two, um, pick your teachers in life well. This is, uh, this goes back to a key point of virtue ethics, right? Virtue ethics is interesting because Virtue ethics is, it, it, it bridges the deontological consequentialist gap by also pre-existing them because virtues are unique traits that you want to cultivate. But you use other people as models for specific virtues and they can even conflict. So when, you, when, you, when you're searching out a teacher in something, treat it like you would treat someone who's teaching you a virtue. You want someone who's going to model that for you. You don't necessarily want an institution because institutions will have these people in them and you have to go through them because I, it, it would be immoral for me to tell someone not to get credentialed at this point in, in, in life, even as things break down. But that's not the point. Like, that's not education. That's credentialing. Right. Um, well, maybe this can relieve some of the stress on students that, look, what a lot of the the pressure they're going through for SAT or IP exams or whatever, this is just external. Yep. It's about getting something, a piece of paper that will prevent you from being homeless, maybe even having a nice life. But for what education actually is, it's like you, you said, books and personal examples, teachers as models, and read as widely as you can. Yeah, and if you and if you have the money, travel. But if you don't, um, I mean, I didn't have the money. I got I part of uh, the glories of my job is I conned other people into paying for me traveling. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't really yeah. con them, but yeah, I kind of did. Um, yeah, but but do that. Um, uh, be civically engaged. Um, part of the 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 importance of universities in American life is because it's this medieval institution. It was one of the few things outside of church. This still had a civic function that wasn't market entirely. And so it was a really good place to network without, you know, and build sincere relationships without necessarily them being automatically marketized. So you're not totally looking to make money or get an advancement in in some kind of um, entrepreneurial institution. Um, Those, that one area of American life will have to be, and of world life, because I'm talking about America right now, but it exists all over the world. We are going to have to find a replacement for. Um, 
and you know, not to go all left wing greedy on your audience, but that's something I think traditionalists and left wingers actually both mutually understand if they really understand economics. Um, even if you like capitalism, its functions are alienating, and its and its creative destruction tears down traditional institutions. And if you don't build counter institutions to replace them, those functions are lost. And if you lose a place for people to make real connections, um when the church is also deracinated largely. I mean, it's it's one of the ironies of, of American life in particular, but also European life, is like, in America, you still have a huge, you know, people who identify as religious, but if you actually look at church attendance, the patterns are no different than in secular Europe. Yeah. So, and, you know, regardless of how you feel about religious belief, that the the social function those things served were a social binding and a place again for for non-market interaction and, the, and in the case of a lot of churches it was also the only place where people of different social classes really mixed all right on not equal footing exactly but closer to it than in other circumstances and this is also this is also somewhat true for like the Cold War University, but as that ends, I don't know what's going to happen with that um, because one of the things about about world life right now is that the social classes are probably the, the even though we all say that there's no formal institutionalized form of them, the distance between them is greater than they've ever been. Interesting. Interesting. This is a topic we might have to explore later on. This this interaction between the secularism and the emerging new class structures. But we're gonna have to wrap up right now. Derek, okay. thank you for joining us. Great thank to have you. you here. So again, listeners out there, you can follow the Robin Boom Show on Robin Phillips website, on our Facebook page, on YouTube and various other channels. And be sure, if you like this episode, want to see more of it, feel free to make a donation at Patreon. So thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. The Robin and Boom Show is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you. To become a patron of the show, go to robinmarkphillips.com and select the Robin Boom Show from the drop-down menu. If you have questions you'd like to have addressed on a future episode, send us a message through our Facebook page. Once again, thanks for listening.